These last few episodes have been fun. From poverty PTSD to buying cheese without apology to trying and failing in the stock market. It's simple. Money is too vital to not discuss openly. So I do not do so as an expert. I do not do so as a guru. Please go on TikTok and you will see so much amazing content on how to grow and build and sustain wealth. But giving is the reason for the season and giving is the point of this program. And so I'm grateful to dig just a little deeper into my heart and share how liberating it is to give. Because yes, I want you all to be rich, but my prayer is that we give richly as we have been given. So thanks for being a part of my Christmas. Thank you for being a part of this program. This is New Problems, the spiritual gift of encouragement. Please do not ask me what my plan is for Christmas. Christmas time is a meal I scrape together with the foods I forgot in the bottom of the pantry. I found a cherry airhead yesterday, which was a Christmas miracle. The point is, I do not arrive at Christmas time with traditions and rituals and things I'm looking forward to. But truthfully, I do do two things at Christmas. I listen to a Christmas Carol on audiobook. A Christmas Carol is one of those stories in our culture that's so pervasive, one could recite the plot and the characters and know the conclusion of a Christmas Carol without actually having read the classic for yourself. Whatever you think about Scrooge, Dickens's descriptions of the classic English Grinch are so much more revolting than you could have imagined. I chopped sweet potato and listened to my favorite sentence with such glee. Eternal heat and cold had no influence on Scrooge. No warmth could warm, no wintry weather chill him, no wind that blew was bitterer than he, no falling snow was more intent upon its purpose, no pelting rain less open to entreaty. Foul weather didn't know where to have him, the heaviest rain and snow and hail, the sleet could boast the advantage over him, and only one respect. They often came down handsomely, and Scrooge never did. Good writing used to make me never want to write again, and A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens is so good, I want to hate it, but I can't. Because Christmas comes around every year and all I have is my sweet potato sausage hash and Charles Dickens on audiobook. So I will listen with gratitude. Because Dickens will have to do, and like my sweet potato hash, it's going quite well, thank you. If Christmas is a time of remembering and returning to a sense of place I feel most like myself, that doesn't happen on December 25th. For me, it happens the Saturday before. As it is written, 
Twas the Saturday before Christmas and all through the house, the mouse was me, watching Channel 4. Because that's when NBC airs its annual broadcast of It's a Wonderful Life. If all I had at Christmas time was It's a Wonderful Life, that would be enough. It's a Wonderful Life is my Christmas candlelight dinner, wearing my coziest sweater and eating bowls of mashed potatoes with excessive amounts of gravy. It's a Wonderful Life is my hot cocoa on the couch waiting to see if Santa slurped through the radiator vents and took his chocolate chip cookies. It's a Wonderful Life is the sound of Nat King Cole injecting the brown sugar from roasted chestnuts into my veins. It's a Wonderful Life is perfect. And more importantly, it's perfect for me. Eight hours ago, I had my first session with a therapist. And as first pancakes go, I wasn't awful, but I was not good. I wanted to be helpful. I wanted to be helpful to my job and my roommates and my future kids and their future mother. So I wanted to be helpful with this therapist. This was not my therapist. This was the therapist who screens me on behalf of their team and eventually pairs me with who will become my eventual therapist. She was the matchmaker. She would take notes, put them together in a brief report, and I would see a therapist accordingly. I wanted to be helpful in composing this report, but I was never going to be very helpful because I'm fine. And people who are fine just say that we're fine. I wanted to be helpful, but some people you can't be so honest with. We're too cute for that. I was asked, do you ever think you drink too much? I answered, well, I have three beers in the fridge. I'll probably finish those today. Not bad. Are you close with your parents? Not really, but you can't choose your family. I'm impressed with how rational everything I said to my matchmaker therapist was. It was all true. None of them were helpful on my steps toward wholeness. But you can be impressed with someone's ability to just sound so rational. I really did want to be helpful. This is me trying. Like my new favorite podcaster, Danny Shapiro, explains, Christmas time is where we don't have to settle for the vocabulary of our ordinary lives. Christmas means we get to go back to the grammar. The foundations. I know how to talk about my life without really sharing what's happening inside because I have a vocabulary I can rest on. The matchmaking therapist got the script. But I don't want my podcast to be an elegant substitute for therapy. I have to get to the grammar. I promise you, I tried to be helpful. 
But how does a man listening to Taylor Swift for the last two hours in a windowless room on Willoughby Avenue long on to Zoom, take out his inner rubber band ball, and have an honest answer to the question, where would you like to begin? I do not have the vocabulary or the grammar to answer that question. Unless you're paying for the hard copy. There is a Sparks Notes version to my life, though. It airs on Channel 4, the Saturday before December 25th. Because no person alive, dead, literarily, or cinematically captures the essence of me with more relentless potency then it's a wonderful life's human rubber band ball of heroic self-loathing like George Bailey. George Bailey is my spirit guide. He is the Horcrux. Before there was an Enneagram or Myers-Briggs, there was just my star sign, and it's a wonderful life. If I am a winnerless room, I share it with my sensei, George Bailey. George Bailey's windowless room had a name, the Bailey Brothers Building and Loan. Building and loans don't exist anymore in modern American society, but the nature of the business is vital to understanding its wonderful life, and George Bailey's existential dilemmas throughout the movie. A building and loan is an alternative to a traditional bank in providing a way for working class people to become homeowners. Per research conducted on TikTok, Normally, a bank approves mortgages upon receiving a down payment and receiving subsequent payments for a set number of years. Home ownership in America is too fundamental to the American ideal of success that it's inexcusable not to address the challenges many, many people, especially blacks, face in this model. One, people are underpaid. Even if they weren't, they may not have enough for the down payment. Two, there is the intersectionality of racism, sexism, and access to fair mortgages. If you were poor and white, if you were rich and black, getting a loan from a bank is not easy. It doesn't matter that wages grew in the decades after the Civil War for all classes and races. People just might not have had a surplus of cash for the down payment. They could not afford the heavy interest. They could not escape racism in America. Becoming a homeowner in America was, and in many ways it still is, an obstacle to ordinary Americans. A building and loan is an alternative to a bank in home ownership. In an essay entitled Home Ownership is Colorblind, The Role of African American Saving and Loans in Home Finance, researcher David L. Mason describes, Building and loans offered African Americans, as well as the citizens of Bedford Falls, a home financing alternative that was in many ways well designed for their economic and social needs. Building and loans were member-owned businesses that people joined by subscribing to shares in the association. The number of shares each member took out often equaled the desired loan amount needed to buy a house and were paid for in equal monthly installments of about $1 to $2 per month per $200 share. 
as share payments accumulated, the association lent the funds to the members with the ultimate goal of all members becoming homeowners. For this to happen, however, members had to develop the habit of systematic saving and agree to work together for this common purpose. To encourage the cooperative spirit, thrift managers, who were chosen by the shareholders and often served without pay, typically developed close personal ties with association members, and in some building and loans, members took it upon themselves to monitor each other's progress. Peter Bailey, George Bailey's father, was a steward of the shares in Bedford Falls' building and loans. He managed the shares of the members, oversaw the construction of homes, and ensured the shares of the members were being accounted for on a monthly basis. Equally importantly, Peter Bailey was the embodiment of the building and loans commitment to community empowerment and the common good. The Bailey Brothers building and loan is as much of a spiritual agreement as it is a financial one. Building and loans were established as communities acknowledged the injustices and hardships experienced by their neighbors and individuals sacrificed their own financial and economic well-being and paired it with the financial and economic security of others. This is all very noble, but money is not something to discuss sentimentally. The banker of Bedford Falls hated the building and loans as a business and as an idea. His name is Mr. Potter. Mr. Potter may as well be described as cinema's original Mitch McConnell a warped and frustrated old man. Anyone in town can get a loan, Potter complains. What does that get us? A lazy rabble instead of a thrifty working class. Potter looks at a loan on his desk and gets incredulous. Take this loan. I know the bank turned down this loan. But he came here and now we're building him a house worth $5,000. Mr. Potter may be cruel and thoroughly immoral, but he is not assessing or reading this situation rationally. Because banks do not have strong opinions about families being raised in stable, warm, cozy houses. They want to make money on the interest. It's simply math. Mr. Potter was doing the math. Peter Bailey wasn't. So when Peter Bailey died, the future of the building alone had to be decided. If Mr. Potter is Mitch McConnell and he's ready to scrape the whole thing, Bailey's brother, Uncle Billy, is Joe Biden. Like the upcoming president, Uncle Billy is friendly and tries. But you wouldn't trust him to wrap every side of a Christmas present. He was never seriously considered for the job. Which means the building and loan manager could only ever go to George Bailey. George, 
on his way to college, on his way to see the world, on his way to build things, on his way to escape the windowless room of Bedford Falls, takes over for his father. Whatever George dreamt of building and seeing, he did not imagine building a two-bedroom home next to another two-bedroom home, next to another two-bedroom home, in a non-notable town. But George Bailey is like me talking to the therapist. We aren't doing this for ourselves. We're doing this for you. And at the very least, George explains, if there was ever a reason to keep the building alone, it's that at least the town will have one place people don't have to go crawling to Potter. This is my first year watching It's a Wonderful Life as a member of the Democratic Socialist of America. Now, I never really considered myself a Democratic Socialist. I don't have the bookshelf I'd imagine a Democratic Socialist having. I don't think I smell like a Democratic Socialist. And I probably was just trying to do my buddy Tim a solid and just give him credit from his referral link. Because I'm a good friend. But if the notions of the democratic socialist are that things have to get changed, George Bailey is the original democratic socialist. Because he stands up to Potter. Doesn't a home make people better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? This rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? George Bailey is the most famous democratic socialist in American cinema history. Because he's basically just a good guy, a good citizen, a faithful husband and friend. If anyone in Bedford Falls should be able to sleep well at night, it's George Bailey. But George Bailey can't sleep well at night because he sleeps in a drafty house with big ass windows that let in too much wind. George Bailey can't sleep well at night because he assesses himself like Mr. Potter assesses his bank accounts and thinks, I don't add up. And all the respect in the world isn't going to keep the draft out and keep the doubt away. I was on a not first date with a not girlfriend once upon a Christmas. We went to a movie theater with food and beer. We watched It's a Wonderful Life. I had $70 in the bank, maybe 60. I, I don't have a credit card. It was literally just me and $60 and a lot of anxiety. What if she wants tater tots? What if she wants a hot toddy? I'm watching my spirit guy, George Bailey on screen, vexed, vexed in a comfy seat, which cost me an extra $8. I'm spending my last dollar like George Bailey, broke, confused. George Bailey is a kissable man, and I'm probably a kissable man, but nobody should be going on dates with me at Christmas time or otherwise. Peg your romantic futures on Sam Wainwright. It's just logical. Sam Wainwright. 
the owner of the plastics business. World War II met Sam Wainwright is loaded. Who are we? Me and George Bailey. The executive of the Bedford Falls building alone? George Bailey cannot sleep at night because there is only one question he asks his wife. Why on the world would you ever marry a man like me? If I was honest with my therapist matchmaker, I'd have told her that my biggest fear is that if people actually knew me more, they wouldn't want me around. If they knew my thoughts, they would not want me around. If they saw what I ate for dinner, they would not want me around. If they knew how much money was in my bank account, they would not want me around. George Bailey wants the best for Mary and the best for the kids and the best for Bedford Falls. But he is not the person to give all of the above their best. There's no question that George Bailey is trying. But at night, when he goes to sleep in a windowless room of Bedford Falls, there's only one conclusion. I cannot be trusted. You cannot trust me. You cannot trust me for your future. Mary Bailey will never not have made a mistake marrying George Bailey. Never watch It's a Wonderful Life and not see me, an existential nightmare with a decent smile. Stay the fuck away. And me, nor George Bailey, is asking you to change our mind about this. We want you to agree with us because ultimately there's going to be a day or an emergency or a restlessness that I cannot get out of, which means it's going to cost you and you don't deserve that. For George Bailey, that emergency has a price, $8,000. Listen, people make mistakes. I don't do a hostile podcast anymore, so I'm not going to talk shit about Uncle Billy. Uncle Billy made a mistake. Yes, it's his fault, but it doesn't mean it's forgivable. It's forgivable. But it's an issue. It's an issue to the building alone. If they don't find the missing $8,000, there is no building alone. It means bankruptcy and scandal and prison. The building alone has no money. It only has the money of the people at Bedford Falls. If the building alone is going to go down, everybody's going to go down. When the desperate George Bailey comes to Potter for a loan in this moment of panic, Mr. Potter breaks down George Bailey's worthiness. Assets? No. Real estate? No. Stocks and bonds? No. George Bailey has a life insurance policy. How much? It's worth $500. Mr. Potter hears enough. His verdict? You're worth more dead than alive. In his heart, George Bailey does not disagree. I'm worth more dead than alive. George Bailey may be melancholy, and he would have loved the new Taylor Swift record, but he's rational. He has a lovely wife, the kids, family. 
He can't throw his life away. He concedes that. But he does change his wish. I wish I had never been born. Maybe you've heard about this part of the movie with the angel Clarence. George Bailey entering an alternate reality where he indeed never was born. No spoilers. But you know what happens. The world of Bedford Falls without George Bailey is a nightmare. Pottersville is a scandal, a casino, a brothel, a slum. Its streets are filled with pawn shops and places called Bamboo Room. Pottersville is for men who need a hard drink and want to get drunk fast. Not fucking mauled wine that's light on the cloves, Clarence. Life without George Bailey really sucked. George Bailey realizes he saved his brother Harry, and Harry went on to be a war hero. George Bailey stopped the pharmacist from effing up the pills, and the pharmacist didn't spend 20 years in jail. George Bailey made a massive difference. Life without Bailey was always going to suck. But the miracle of It's a Wonderful Life isn't George Bailey arriving at some newly discovered sense of inner peace. It's that he's embracing the peace everyone else had about him all along. And no one had more peace about George or with George than Mary. She is a true hero. On their wedding day, there's a run on the bank. Uncle Billy Biden panics and closes the door. Which got everybody in a frenzy. George, on his way to a beautiful honeymoon with his beautiful wife, has to stop by. The people are panicking. We need our money from our shares now. George Bailey's money is lent. It's not stored he doesn't have it hiding in a lockbox somewhere. But the people insist, we want our cash. George, Uncle Billy, they don't know what to do. But then there's Mary, arriving with the money she and her husband were planning to take on their honeymoon. And she gives it to the shareholders accordingly. This is a brutal scene. George Bailey has lived his whole life to take his wife on this honeymoon. This is all he's ever wanted. To get away, to get away with Mary, to be the man who can take Mary somewhere. It was never going to be that easy. And it actually wasn't. George Bailey starts that day the happiest day of the rest of his life and ends it with $2. He heads to his home on Sycamore Street, though. And it isn't a dreary, empty, drafty house. He arrives to see candles and a dinner with posters and flowers hosted by his friend and Mary seated with a smile. This is not the honeymoon he asked for. But the honeymoon was never about a place. It's about the possibilities with a person. Mary's dream for her honeymoon did not change because she gave away the money. Because the honeymoon was not a thing she or he could buy. 
her honeymoon was to be with George Bailey. George Bailey determined there was a dilemma that was never really a problem. Because if all one possesses is simply what one does, Mary could not have married a better man. Which she expected, and she had no doubts, because she was sharing in his riches and returning it back to him tenfold. One day this summer, I took the six train with a sour attitude and two slices of sausage pizza wrapped in a white paper bag. My bad attitude is because I'm just generally grouchy. The sausage pizza is because it's my favorite from a place I like a lot in the Upper East Side. I'm not sure when I planned on eating the pizza, so it rested in my hands on my lap like the baby Jesus. I was in a bad mood, and the pizza was so good, I probably just didn't deserve to eat it yet. No more than two stops on my trip, a man walked in asking for anything. He was no more than 40, a New Yorker. I wasn't doing anything with the white paper dag, so I handed it over. With little joy, but no real hesitation. He opened the bag, peeped inside. He looked at me, then stopped himself. Only if I'm not removing this from your mouth. I said I wasn't. He continued down the car. And that's when I snapped into it. In my giving of the pizza, I learned more that I'm just one of the fortunate ones with enough to share. Yes, I am privileged to share. But in the sharing of the pizza, I learned something much more powerful. That people have my back. This homeless guy had my back. Because this is our city. Which means I am his person and he is my person. If all I have in any given moment are the slices of pizza I'm carrying, I'll always be in a bad mood. Because pizza runs out and I'm just a man heading back to a windowless room. But when I share what I have... I become aware that I am safer than I knew, surrounded by more than I realized. George Bailey had shares in a life insurance policy he had just never realized until the people of Bedford Falls started dumping their savings onto his table with rejoicing and no questions asked. If you need it, George, I got you, George, because he had a legacy he gave out of love and duty and compassion, but in giving, he more so discovered that the places where he dwelt is where his security abided. There's so much certainty in so many of the wrong things. The markets, our jobs, our incomes, our salaries, our Furby collections, and our mother's basements. Yes, they accrue value and they're important and they're worth having. But they're for certain until the day they aren't. But the things we do are our only possessions. When Harry Bailey calls George Bailey the richest man in town, George knows that there is nothing in Bedford Falls George Bailey cannot access. His life of doing meant that he would lack no good thing. 
just because he cannot see his maid's divorce fund and just because he cannot see the $25,000 Sam Rainwright cables over from London doesn't mean that that money wasn't available to him the whole time. He just didn't know it yet. George Bailey had empty hands from his giving and that frustrated him. But his empty hands meant he would fully possess everything he and his family would ever need. George Bailey may not have gave the most. He just gave most often. And that's what made the difference. So what does that mean for me? A man talking to a therapist and he doesn't know where to begin. I think I want to know... What do I do with my empty hands? What do I do with the little I can give? What do I do with so much that I want to keep to my chest? I did this reading from Corinthians. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives generously. And God will generously provide all you need, and you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources and then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. I cannot accumulate enough to then become ready to start giving something away. Generosity is a choice I have to make and you have to make with empty hands if necessary. The prayer is this, I must decide how much in my heart I can give, which is hard. I have poverty PTSD. I will always be tempted to keep what I have just enough to feel ready that I'm worth having around and I've got a little bit of myself that can be spared. But that fear won't lead to a sense of safety just the sense life is a pizza and I'm scrambling for a piece and lamenting taking that piece from someone equally in fear. The paradox of giving is that we give and become aware of the abundance around us. If what you carry is what you're certain about, all you will have is the two slices of pizza you're ready to eat alone when you get uncertainty works both ways. When we keep to ourselves, our hands feel heavy. When we give, our hands don't feel empty, they feel open. My hands are ready to receive, my hands are ready to be held, my hands are ready to rejoice. <laughs>